From KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide, this is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey, Nick. Hey, Seamus. How are you guys doing? Good. How are you? I'm doing great, man. I'm in Barcelona, Spain. What's that like? It's beautiful. The city has really changed over the last 10, 15 years. It's getting much more open to bicycles and multimodal transportation. Now I'm about a half hour outside of the city and at my wife's mother's house. And it's gorgeous. And I'm going to get ready to go for a sunset ride. I am jealous. What's the bike infrastructure like? They've done a really good job by making separated, protected bike lanes. Barcelona has always been a city with a lot of motos, two-stroke engine motorbikes, and they've always just intermingled with the cars on the road. So the cars on the streets are used to having bikes around them. But now they've really created this environment where the bikes are separated. And the motorbikes are still in the street, of course, but the bicycles are totally protected. It means anybody can bike, children, elderly, families. It's a beautiful way to open up the city. Cool. So tell us, what's going on in bike racing? Well, we have to talk about that because I'm in Spain and the Vuelta a España is going on right now. That's the last of the three grand tours, the Tour of Italy, the Tour de France, and then the third one is this one, the Tour of Spain. And American Sepp Kuss won a stage in the mountains earlier in the week. And now he's wearing the red jersey, which is the leader's jersey, which is like the yellow jersey in the Tour de France, but it's the red jersey in the Tour of Spain. And he's up by about a minute, a minute and 30 seconds with a week left. So we don't know how the race is going to turn out. But the last American to win the Vuelta a España was Chris Horner in 2013. So it's been 10 years and American is back on top, which is great news. And I guess we'll know when people hear this who won. Right. What's going on in the States, you guys? In the news, there's a LA Times article, which gets into the e-bike backlash, bike lash. Do you have the title? There's a car-sized hole in recent e-bike safety concerns. In this article by Ryan Fonseca in the LA Times, I think really does a great job of putting a hole in that argument, if you will. Car-sized hole? Car-sized <laughs> hole. It's dangerous for all kinds of bikes out there, but it's not because of the bikes or the e-bikes. It is because of people driving cars too fast and too many cars. There's a statistic in that article 42,000 people were killed last year in the United States by cars. 10 people die every single day in the great state of California by cars. Time out. 10 people a day in California or 10 people a day in the country? 10 people a day in California alone. This is just in California. So if you're in another state, that's another however many people proportionate to the number of people there. Right. Well, 42,000 people were killed in the United States last year by cars. Wow. The argument that people were making about e-bikes is that they were inherently unsafe. And that's not the case, right? Yes. It's dangerous to ride a bike, but it's not because of the bike. Right. It's because you're biking next to cars. Right. Which is why we need separated infrastructure people who ride bikes. Yeah. Well, that's a little bit like what the listener email was. We've been getting a lot of listener email lately. And the most recent one was about the interview with Jeff Speck. It's a little critical, but I'll read it. Listener Devin said of the Jeff Speck interview that you did, Taylor, it's Uh disappointing that Jeff Speck would talk about his bike project that involved new door zone bike lanes. These should never be built. Any bike person involved with the project 
that results in a door zone bike lanes should resign immediately and call attention to the fraud being committed against the public. They're not safe. They can't be used by kids on bikes. If the fire department wants a wide lane for their dumb trucks, leave a wide lane. It has nothing to do with bikes. Leave the bicycle stencil at the warehouse. Planners who say they want safety but sign off on door zone lanes are harming everyone who bikes. Jeff should have been challenged on this point. Did he say this, Taylor? And should you have challenged him? Jeff can speak for himself, certainly. He's very articulate. And I didn't remember him at all saying that he was supportive of bike stripes. I would call a bike lane like that just a bike stripe, meaning it's just a piece of paint between you and a car that's going you know, 35, 45 miles an hour. And the listener is completely right. It's not safe. But I, as a cyclist, prefer that to nothing because it does give me four feet of space on the side of the road where a car knows I can be. That car can easily drift over the line and hit me, and I'm sure they do often, but I would prefer that space as opposed to no space. Fight for the best you can get, but take the low-hanging fruit when it's there. Because where I live, there are lots of areas that have just a bike stripe. It's Sunset Boulevard. And I would prefer to ride in a bike stripe on a road like Sunset than without that. Seamus, how do you feel about that? The bike lanes that are in the door zone specifically, I either tend to ride like on the line. <laughs> That's like separating the bike lane from the actual car traffic lane. Or I just right. ride in the traffic lane. But I do get a great deal of anxiety because we just don't have the culture, especially in California, where people look before they open a door. Right. And the amount of injuries related to getting doored, I think, are very high. The bike stripe lanes that I'm thinking of in Los Angeles on Sunset or Santa Monica Boulevard do not have parked cars on the right. They have a curb. And I think that is a difference. And the bike stripe is everywhere in America, if not the world. I think it's a part of the culture everywhere. Well, not in the Netherlands, but for drivers to open their door into a bike lane without looking. Well, that's why in some countries they teach drivers to open their driver's side door with their right arm. So they're yeah. reaching across their body to turn and yeah. look behind them before they open the door. It's called the Dutch reach. Oh, I like that term. Right Let's on. coin that. We discovered it. We can take credit for that, I think. I actually think that that should be part of the driving test. It absolutely should be standard across the country. Yeah. Let's go to our first interview of this episode. So here we are today. Seamus and I are going to interview Dan Burton. And Dan has been a bike advocate or identified as a bike person your entire life, right, Dan? Yes. Certainly when I could first share a bike with my sister and brother, every third day the bike was mine. And I talked my sister into doing the dishes for her and ended up with two out of the three days. Oh, you had one bike? Among three kids. Uh, and you helped start Adventure Cycling, which started as Bike Centennial, right? Yes, my wife and I. That would have been in the uh, 73, 74, 75, 76. Correct. And you were the first bike coordinator for the state of Florida's Department of Transportation? Yes. At the wow. time, there were only states that had a coordinator. Florida, though, really stepped out ahead of all of the others because they fully intended to carry it out and did. It became one of the real training grounds for professionals that work in bicycling. And we went through an intensive training course, got the positions funded. And I'd say today there are easily 100 full-time people working in Florida on bicycling, probably a lot more than that. 
And I don't know how many other states and cities have bike or walking coordinators, but it's a lot now. It's required by federal or legislative code. All 50 do. But I would say only 10, maybe 12 take it seriously. The others have it in title and really don't do the work. Does Florida take it seriously now? Quite seriously. Yeah. In fact, with the Florida Department of Transportation and then six or eight other state agencies, they all take it very seriously. They're trying to overcome the many missteps of the past and use multimodal transportation seriously, active transportation, of course, equity, all the things that really belong in transportation. And Florida is a state that's taking all of that very seriously. That's amazing. I love that story. Today, I wanted to talk to you about your work with Blue Zones. I heard about Blue Zones because it's a Netflix special about the places in the world where people live the longest. That is correct. There are five hot spots in the world where people forget to die. <laughs> and why? What makes people have such a good time living that they forget to die? What Dan Buettner discovered as he went to these five hot spots in the world, which were all known, he figured out what are the things that are keeping people alive. And the big one is they live happy and purposeful lives. They eat the right foods and they naturally are active. They don't belong to gyms or anything. They garden, they walk. In some of the countries, they are in hilly terrain, so they walk up steep inclines frequently. So they keep their bodies active. Yeah, naturally. And so what's the Blue Zone project that you're working with? Here in the U.S., the Blue Zones LLC, it is a for-profit corporation, will go out and secure very large pots of money, typically from medical corporations, and then work in a community or an entire county to power up all the principles of Blue Zones. I work just on the built environment side. I go in and provide training at each level when they want to adopt, for example, complete streets. I'll put on the complete streets training. Or if they want to fix one corridor in their town and make it a place where people walk, bike, and use transit more, I go in and I help them create that vision and then find the right professional teams to come in and do the engineering, the planning. Can you talk about just the bike part of it? And does it make sense without the healthy eating and the rest of it? It certainly makes sense to talk about having a community be where walking becomes the most natural activity. Same with bicycling. If we're doing great things for one mode, walking, we're also doing it for bicycling. So, for example, to have walking be a success, you have to get across the street. Well, bicycles have to get across the street. Walking works better if the speeds of traffic are low and the motors are courteous. And once you achieve that, you're also creating the ideal environment for bicycling. And I would say the same is true if you look at it from the bicycle window. What you're doing for the bicycle, and let's just use an example. If you put in bicycle lanes, you're further separating the pedestrian from the motors. And by doing that, more people end up being able to walk comfortably and not just living on the edge of oblivion because there's no buffer to the moving car. What do you think about the growing enthusiasm around e-bikes? Do you see them as part of a blue zone or a livable community, a component of those? I do. I own three. Yes. Or high-end treks, and I love them. And I don't like the ones that have the throttles. I think that, oh, come on. But if you're using one where you're required to pedal... Then in my town, which is very hilly, 
we're considered the San Francisco of the North, then I can go grocery shopping and power myself up the hill. And yet I'm getting good exercise. And so I think they're a very big part of the future, but they need to have certain levels of speed control. And that's why I like the electric assist as opposed to throttles. <laughs> I think I agree with you. I'm reading your biography, and I don't know if we can talk about your 4,300-mile Trans-American Bicycle Trail Ride that you did in the 70s. Can you just tell us a little bit about that? Our expedition was from Alaska to Argentina, 21,000 miles total. Now, I led the expedition, but when I got to Central America, I had come down with hepatitis, so I dropped out, but the expedition went all the way to the end. It was a life dream of mine. When I was back in high school, I would sit in study hall and think about bicycling around the world, but then realized I'd need to learn a lot of languages. So I said, how about if I just bicycle from Alaska to Argentina? It'll actually be more miles, and I only need to know two languages, and I already know one of them. So <laughs> that's what drove that decision. And it turned out to be a really amazing, I would say, the takeoff point for my life, where I realized that it's something anyone could do. We weren't athletes. We had never been top in competition and anything in our lives. My wife and I and another couple. And then we'd have other people join us from time to time. And we went through some pretty tough conditions. I remember particularly 18 days in a rainforest where it never stopped raining. That was in British Columbia. In fact, we were the first to ride that particular road. It was still being built, but we did it all sloshing through mud the whole distance. So it was fun. Wow. And we met the great people, proved to ourselves that you can accomplish a lot in life. And we felt that the bicycle was the right speed. We didn't want to go more than 50 miles a day and rarely did. Even when we ended up on pavement, the first 2,100 miles was on dirt. But once we hit pavement, that next day we did 105 miles and couldn't believe it. But then we tuned ourselves back to where we were doing 50 miles a day, meeting more people, more enjoyment of what we were doing. You called it Hemisphere? Hemisphere. Hemisphere, yes. Like the Hemisphere, Hemisphere. And you started Bike Centennial then, which became Adventure Cycling, which is all about giving people routes to make the kind of tours that you did. Exactly. And today we're a warm showers host. So people who are biking long distances or even a weekend bike ride will come and stay and we give them a shower and a great comfortable place to stay for the day or the weekend, whatever. We still get the adventurers through cool. them. We enjoy staying young. <laughs> you are an inspiration. Your story is amazing. Thank you. We are Thank joined you. by Taylor Nichols. Are you there, Taylor? Hey, you guys. Yeah, I am. Hey, Dan. Hi, Taylor. Taylor may be zooming in from far away. Where are you? I am. I'm zooming in from Barcelona, Spain. Wow. Oh, my gosh. The most walkable but city in the world. It's a beautiful city, and it's becoming more and more bikeable all the time. Yes. Well, that's amazing. And you may have heard, Taylor, about the Blue Zones where people have the longest lifespans. Yes. Dan and his company turn cities into Blue Zones, or that's the idea. And making them bikeable, walkable is a big part. I've been following Dan's work for a long time. You're in a lot of streets films, and I've always enjoyed those. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, I've been at it for a while. <laughs> I'm about to turn 80 and I still work full-time, actually above full-time. Wow. And I've just got the best job in the world, so I'm not going to slow down. 
Is the wind at our back? Is there a little bit of momentum in changing cities? Yeah, I think yes, across the board. Certain countries are well ahead of others. And it's a matter of the U.S., for example, trying to catch up with Australia or New Zealand or even Canada. We're the back of the pack. Right. <laughs> so if we could jump into a pace line, I think we could work our way up amazingly fast. We have a lot of people now who are trained. They're skilled advocates. They know what to do. It's just a matter of getting their engineer, their planner, their city administrator to recognize that building just for the car has been a dead end street for a long time. That's what we talk about every episode of Bike Talk. <laughs> every segment. Every segment, every episode. We were talking about how getting authentic exercise, like, you know, instead of driving everywhere, biking or walking, I've heard that people live 40% longer if they bike commute? They certainly live longer. And I think happier and overall healthier lives. The human being is a social creature and we need to see other people to meet up with other people, to experience activities with other people. And even if it was only a 30 minute bike ride a day or walking and biking or in combination, that is an amazing way to feel much happier, <laughs> especially if we can do that through a rural area or a wooded trail, you know, forest bathing, we call it. There's just so many ways that the bicycle brings about greater uh, health, longevity, and happiness. And what cities have you worked on? The very first one was Albert Lee, Minnesota, a small town of about 20,000. And we were able to, one, complete their trail systems and two, revitalize their downtown and work on a number of other built environment elements to get far more people walking, biking. That spread to many other activities like gardening and changed out the nutritional habits of people. More people ended up with a purpose in life, all the qualities of Blue Zone communities of the world. So they were first. We now work in close to 100 communities throughout the United States, one in Canada so far. The big ones that people would quickly recognize would be Fort Worth, Texas, a very conservative state. They say the reddest city in the reddest state. And the point is, health is for everyone. Another big one is Honolulu, Hawaii. We're doing huge amounts of work in Honolulu. Over long periods of time, most cities we're working in at first were only for three years where we hire staff and do all the work to get the energies up and the policies written and the programs developed. Now, we've got a couple of projects going in states like Florida, Naples, all of Jacksonville, and we keep spreading both to big cities and to medium and even small size cities. We often talk about that there's a red-blue, as in conservative-progressive divide in bicycle infrastructure. Have you seen that bear out, or it sounds like maybe that's not the case? It's not the case. More than half of the communities we've worked in have been more conservative. When it comes to health, it's across the board. Right. Everybody has that interest. I would say the challenge of getting something done in a more conservative community, it takes more effort. For example, one of our newest towns is Scottsdale, Arizona. That's a, I would say, more liberal community in a teetering state between red and not. <laughs> but we need oases. We need places where people can say, well, it's working there. Why can't it work in our town? So if we do go into the most conservative town in the state and launch there, then the more moderate communities in the same state can say, this can apply to us as well, right? 
the opposite of what people say about like Amsterdam. We're not Amsterdam. Right. <laughs> well, it doesn't matter where I work in the country. People say, well, don't pick a town outside of our state. Then they'll say, well, don't pick a town that has a college. You know, you can always say we're unique. Nobody's like us. Yes, it is true. I have found that to be the case. But the same principles apply. There's no such thing as this principle won't work in our town. No, every principle that leads to greater health, a better economy, whatever, does apply to every single community in America. That's great to hear, I think, because no one argues whether a stint in a heart procedure works or not. They just argue, is that the right procedure for this person? And I think yep. the same is true kind of with bicycle infrastructure. Absolutely. All five of the original Blue Zone communities had these qualities to them. You've got to eat the right foods. If you live on a wrong diet, you're not going to live as long. And if you have a purpose in life, that'll add seven years to the average life if you have a purpose. And that could be anything. It could be raising your grandchildren or enjoying bike rides. It could be feeling like there's value in what you do in your own life, right? And I suspect if I'm going to live a long life, my purpose is probably at the very forefront. It's many other things. Staying active. People who become sedentary are not going to live as long. Oh, a cessation of smoking. Smoking is such a horrific killer. My own dad died early because of his smoking habit. You want to belong to the right tribe. If you, say, are with a bunch of people who like to stay lean or stay active, you're going to live longer because <laughs> you end up sharing similar habits to the people who are your closest friends. Yeah. And there is the power of belonging to a bicycle organization and getting out on some regular rides. Not only is it sociable and a very healthy thing to do, but there's a certain camaraderie that exists when you belong to the right tribe. Can you describe what a blue zone is? Is it a place that you've found that, okay, this meets all the criteria or is it somewhere where you've gone in and kind of help organize it? As an example, one of our communities, and I'm going to use Naples, Florida, just because they've done so much. Naples, Florida has a hospital group that's been funding them. And for them, it's ongoing. They've been funded for over 10 years. And they hire staff. Typically, if it's a small town, it'll be five full-time staff. If it's a big town like Fort Worth, Texas, it could be 35 or even 40 full-time staff for multiple years. And these folks have specialties. They might be good at developing policies and working with communities. They might be really good at putting together meetings and organizing events that people are going to come to and become more knowledgeable and start to support a direction in their community. All these things, they follow a similar program and usually get them underway within the first year, but it does take multiple years to get them deeply embedded and change the government policies, the incentives long term. Do you think about the time when you won't be able to ride anymore? I don't think there will be such a time. I am about to turn 80. I no longer can throw my leg over a diamond frame bike. I use a step-through model. And I do appreciate the added balance I get by being able to use an electric assist bike, especially for the hilly terrain I'm in. I know some people who have been active in bicycling until at least their 90s. And each person has to deal with whatever balance issues they're facing or what other health issues they have. But for me, 
bicycling is a better activity than walking. And I say that because I had some serious spine issues for seven or eight or nine years. And I've had surgery now. And so walking is comfortable for me again. But I can be more active on my bike than I can with walking because it's totally pain-free for me <laughs> to ride a bike. Oh, that's, that's great. I'm glad to hear that. Thank you for answering that because that's a question that I certainly think about and I think others do also. Absolutely. Do you want to say what your bike joy is? The time or times or a part of your route that you think of as being your bike joy? Well, for me, it's getting out of the traffic morass and it could be on a trail. It could be an urban trail. But I just so thoroughly enjoy the experience of going places I've never been on my bike. When I was a kid, my world was easily a 30-mile radius from my home. I could just go anywhere in a day's time. When I would get out at certainly the unusual times of the day, for example, coming back from a bike ride at night after the low areas started to get little bits of fog and things like that, all the different fragrances that kept bringing back memories. And today, when I go out on a ride like that, if I'm smelling something that I haven't smelled for 20, 30, 60 years, all of a sudden, I'm drawn to that moment when I first experienced that sense. So yes, for me, it's riding alone in solitude that really kickstarts my brain. <laughs> I love that. And you're connecting your riding now to your youth, and that sort of connects to the idea of longevity, too. Absolutely. I'm so glad to have you on, and I'm so glad I was able to join. Thanks very much for coming on Bike Talk. Thank you. So it's Nick and Seamus again. Hey, Seamus. Here we are. Taylor Sunset Ride in Barcelona. So he's off. Yeah, that sounds awful. Well, you just do what you have to do to get through. Going back to that number of 42,000 people killed last year in the United States by cars, mm -hmm. that's 115 people every single day just killed by cars. Reckless driving, speeding, all of it. So that's including people in cars being killed by cars. That's not just vulnerable road users, cyclists. But it just sort of puts it in perspective when people talk about, oh my gosh, e-bikes, when people talk about how dangerous e-bikes are to their riders. Yeah, there certainly weren't that many cyclists killed by other bikes last year, that's for sure. And bikes definitely didn't kill 115 people a day. Well, and part of that is how many more people drive than bike. But even if there were as many cars as bikes on the road, obviously far fewer people would be killed by them. Yeah, I think there were 300 million bikes on the road. You wouldn't get that many deaths in a decade. Yeah, of course, this is speculation. We have another interview, right? Yeah, and here it is. I'm a big follower of Streets Blog LA. I go to the New York Times first, go to the LA Times second, and Streets Blog LA is third. Last week, I read a really wonderful article by Liz Schuller called Why Do We Love Cars More Than We Love Our Children? And lucky for us, Liz is here today with us on Bike Talk. Hi, Liz. Welcome to Bike Talk. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about what brought you to the point of writing this article. What brought me to write that article was just white hot rage. The invitation for the opening came to us via Instagram. This is the invitation for the opening of the new streetscape that they did on Huntington Drive in Pasadena. For anyone who's not from the area, which I hope is lots of listeners, Huntington Drive is a huge boulevard with many lanes and a wide median where I imagine there was once a red car. 
Which is a streetcar for people who don't know what the red cars are in L.A. Right. Yes. Look sometime for a map of the streetcar network that existed in Los Angeles and you'll cry. It was hugely extensive. You could get anywhere in LA. Anyway, so Huntington, cars move fast, lots of lanes. They re-landscaped the median, which is great. It's now a low water landscape. And they put a stripe for a bike lane on this very fast road. And the county supervisor was having a ribbon cutting and opening we hadn't been formally invited, and a couple of our activists are staff members with Active San Gabriel Valley, and they had tried to get a protected bike lane in that space, and local residents would have liked a protected bike lane. And the supervisor overruled. Catherine Barger? Catherine Barger. This isn't the first time that Barger has said no to bike lane. I just was really mad. And I biked down to the opening. I took some pictures, talked to a few people. The project manager for the project was sitting right behind me. And then there were a bunch of other engineers from Public Works who I just was chatting with. And most of the attendees were bike club people. So people who are very accustomed to riding on fast roads under less than safe conditions. And they had their jerseys from their clubs. So we took a ride along the bike path and one of those really experienced riders was riding next to me and she said, yeah, no, this doesn't really feel safe. I had all my fellow advocates to give me background about Barger and about the history of that street and their work, trying to get better infrastructure there, the fact that the county bike planners would have liked better infrastructure there. And she said no. And she represents a little more conservative parts of L.A., you know, bike talk is on the air in Massachusetts and Oregon and Detroit and, of course, Los Angeles. And these kinds of projects are going in there also on big arterial roads when they are changing them, when they are repaving them. Sometimes they are doing a little bit of an upgrade and putting in a bike stripe. But as you notice, and as we all know, that's not safe. It's a half measure. In fact, the picture in your article is really beautiful. I wonder if you could explain what the picture is when they're cutting the ribbon. They set up a couple poles and they put a big ribbon, but it's not on the bike lane. It's in the park next to the right. bike lane because no one would want to stand out on the street on Huntington. You'd probably get hit. And right. as we took our ride, there were a couple of LA County Sheriff's SUVs that rode alongside us to protect our honorable supervisor on her ride. Right. So I wonder if those police will be there all the time to protect uh, the cyclists as they go back and forth. My guess is no. <laughs> you mentioned in the article that at the time, Huntington Drive is eight lanes wide, but at intersections, it's 11 lanes wide. It's a highway through the middle of your town. And we've been talking a lot on Bike Talk about these kinds of half measures. I'm sure Barger thinks she's done a good job by putting in a bike stripe. She's probably made the road a little bit better. But half measures don't even take us halfway. We did a show on mammals recently, mammals meaning middle-aged men in Lycra or middle-aged <laughs> women in Lycra that are very confident, hardcore cyclists. They're glad to have that bike stripe. I'm glad to have that bike stripe, but that's not going to put my wife on a bike or I don't want my child then on a bike riding on that road where the car right on my left is going 45, 50, 55 miles an hour. Yeah, you die if that car touches you. We're now advocating for a design which follows all ages and abilities standards. So these are standards. I referenced them in the article at the end. 
that's all the tools we have for traffic calming, for reducing traffic, particularly on neighborhood streets. So these are neighborhood streets, although they all cross the 210 freeway, which is essential for somebody on a bike in Pasadena. It's like the big thing that goes across our town. That kind of design reduces traffic and also brings all cars down to 20 miles an hour. And if you get hit by a car at 20 miles an hour, it's not fun. You probably won't die. Right. You could create an all ages and abilities bike path on Huntington, but there would be big barriers. There would be concrete, there would be metal barriers between you on the bicycle and the traffic. And then you wouldn't be taking your life into your hands. Right. And you would be able to ride on this major artery, which in fact, there's a lot of destinations. We've talked sometimes in our group about how people don't just ride for fun or for exercise. Many people use a bicycle for their primary mode of transportation, right. especially if you can't afford a car. Right. Most of the trips that we all take are less than five miles. That's a perfect distance for a bicycle. So those big roads that are full of cars, why shouldn't I be able to ride my bike on that road? Because the store that I want to go to is on that road or my child's school is on that road. Right. One of the things we've also been talking on Bike Talk is the bike lash. You know, people complaining about bikes and complaining about putting in bike infrastructure that might take out a parking place or several parking places. Spending money on unsafe, inadequate bike and pedestrian facilities will only encourage the naysayers. I wonder if you could talk about that for a second. Sure. You have to come to a middle ground on the question of whether a piece of bike infrastructure is used if you don't see a bike in it. Right. Because bikes go kind of fast and we don't have traffic jams on bikes. They just keep moving. So if you look at a piece of bicycle infrastructure and there's no bikes in it, wait 10 minutes. If there's no bike in it right now, it means that you might have missed someone 30 seconds ago who went through. But if you put in bike infrastructure like that stripe on Huntington and no one feels safe to use it, then that accusation of, well, well, we did this thing, but no one uses it. That's true because we don't want to use it because it's not safe. Right. And that only bolsters their argument for not putting it in someplace else. Yes. You have to have good design. I want to say something about the title of the piece. I watch Not Just Spike's YouTube channel sure. and various other people who post and write about bikes. There's a kind of a summary overview of the transformation that the Netherlands went through and how their streets used to be full of cars and now they are full of bicycles and their design is very thoughtful. And one of the triggers for the mass demonstrations that led to better bicycle infrastructure in the Netherlands was the deaths of children on the road killed by cars. And I don't know why do we love our children less than we love our cars. We demonstrate that not just with our road design, but also the fact that we don't have paid leave for parents and right. we don't have affordable childcare and we don't fund public education. So there's lots of signs and also gun control and the fact that so many children are killed by guns in addition to be being killed by traffic, um, right. by drivers. Right. Um, I wish that we loved our children more. And I think if we talk about it and are more conscious about it, more aware of it, then that can be a step toward people questioning their own assumptions. Drivers that kill people don't go to jail. Right. 
Well, hopefully that's changing. And hopefully articles like yours, why do we love cars more than we love our children, will help change that dynamic. Hopefully. Every little bit counts. That's the nature of organizing. It's one by one, person by person, meeting by meeting, council meeting by council meeting, email by email. In Pasadena, lots of things are a struggle, but the city council was considering whether to have a rebate program for e-bikes. They do have a rebate program for electric cars, right? and it's not used very much. Electric cars are pretty expensive. There was a staff recommendation opposed to even a pilot program for e-bike rebates. And we have a mailing list of 1,300, 1,400 people. So we sent out an action alert. And there were 60-some emails sent to the council members. And we got our e-bike rebate pilot program. And it went into effect on July 1st of this year. And they might be almost out of money now. That's what I've heard. Well, that's great news. That's positive news. And you're right. It really is one step at a time to finding safe streets. What's your next article? What's your next fight? Oh, that's a funny question because that was my first piece I ever got published in Streets Blog. Oh, Um, congratulations. uh, Thank you. Writing piece like that, like I said, it comes out of white hot rage. So we'll have to see what I get angry about next. I do want to also plug Pasadena Complete Streets Coalition, PasadenaCSC.org. And riding a bike is fun, you guys. Just try it. (laughs) Absolutely. We'd love to see more people at our rides. The last ride we did, we went across the Colorado Street Bridge, which was, I think, the first time we had ever done that on a ride. It was really fun. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Liz Schuller, thanks for your article. And thanks for being on Bike Talk. Thanks for inviting me. And I'll send you a Bike Talk t-shirt. I can't wait. Hey, hello, everybody, and thank you for tuning in to Bike Talk. Today, I have a special guest, Calvin Thigpen from Lime. Lime recently gained approval to the Low Carbon Fuel Standard Program set by the California Air Resources Board. That is the LCFS by the CARB, or CARB, as folks call it in the Golden State. Calvin, how are you today? And can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what's happening at Lime? I'm doing great, Seamus. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to share a little bit about our entry into the LCFS program. So I'm Calvin Thigpen, Director of Policy Research at Lime. And my background is really in sort of the academic side of transportation planning and policy. I got my PhD at UC Davis studied bicycling behavior and attitudes. And shortly after completing my PhD, jumped over to Lyme, where I've been the director of policy research for the last five years now. For those who aren't familiar with Lyme, we are the world's largest shared electric vehicle company. Our mission is to advance a transportation future that is sustainable and equitable. And we operate in over 200 cities around the world, from my hometown of San Francisco, all the way to Melbourne, to Berlin, in most major cities around the world. In my role as Director of Policy Research, I'm at Lyme to conduct the long-term robust research around shared micromobility, so bikes, scooters. So for example, we're in year four of this long continuing research collaboration with professors at Cornell and University of Oregon studying parking. We've done research collaborations on sustainability, equity. And so that's really my role to work with academics 
and do the type of work that helps lead towards the LCFS program. So excited to talk a little bit more about that today. That's super cool. I did not realize that Lime was the largest company in this space. It wasn't the first. And so that's something of an achievement in and of itself, right? Yeah. Bird, I think, has the distinction of being the first major electric scooter company, at least in the U.S., We had been founded, I think, just prior to Spurred Scooters arriving in Santa Monica. And so we already had bikes, but we swiftly saw the opportunity with scooters and have been operating scooters and bikes now for the last six plus years. So I think that the sort of advent of micromobility companies has given a lot of people hope. Now there's the introduction of this tool to reduce carbon emissions, greenhouse gas emissions. Can you talk about what this specific major milestone is and what it means for the company and what it means for micromobility? What is the significance? Yeah, I'll dive into what those acronyms mean a little bit. So CARB, the California Air Resources Board, has been around a long time. It sets some of the most stringent standards for air quality and greenhouse gas emissions around the world. In the U.S., CARB standards for cars, for passenger vehicles, regularly sets the standard for the rest of the U.S. Other cities sort of follow suit, and that forces automakers' hands. And so as a result, we all benefit from cleaner air, lower greenhouse gas emissions. So that's CARB, very much a world-leading entity. And then LCFS is the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, and that was established by CARB as one of many measures that they use to reduce carbon emissions from the transportation sector in the state. And so Mm -hmm. to get a little bit technical into the weeds about what LCFS is and how it's supposed to work, what they do is CARB sets a carbon emissions standard. So it's carbon intensity. CARB requires higher emitting transportation fuel companies, people that produce fuels that are higher than that standard. They have to either get their emissions down to that standard Or, and here's where we come in, or they have to pay lower emitting transportation companies as a way of offsetting their higher emissions. And then over time, that standard decreases. So we're not just swapping things (laughs) and sort of maintaining the status quo. That carbon standard decreases over time. So we're heading towards decarbonizing the transportation sector. And so Lime, as a low emitting transportation option, has the chance to earn revenue through this program because we are below that standard, that carbon intensity standard. We can earn some modest revenue from transportation companies that are above the standard. To actually get into this program, LCFS has historically been very focused on cars and driving, right? That's literally what it was designed to do was to reduce carbon emissions from the transportation fuels used in California. And so it was understandably very focused on cars. And so what happened was a couple of years ago, essentially there were some regulatory changes and it allowed companies like Lime to apply to establish what are called new pathways, new ways for non-car entities, non-traditional entities to enter the program. And so we took full advantage of that. It was a long process. Just to be totally clear, this is not pay to play. We didn't pay to enter this program. This is a very rigorous application process. Sorry, that is different than the cap and trade type. Similar in some ways, but it's different. It has some similarities, but yeah, it's not exactly the same as cap and trade. And we actually had a third party come visit our warehouse. So is this very rigorous program or is a public comment period? And so we've now reached the other side and now we can start to participate. 
So what does this mean for micromobility? Does it mean anything for micromobility in terms of the future of micromobility? Are we looking at this as evidence that supports the importance of micromobility in addressing our climate goals in California? What does it mean for Lyme? I think it means two big things for Lyme and for the industry. The first is really around the financial piece. And it's a growing recognition that some shared micromobility companies have been really struggling. So some of the companies that have gone public have been threatened to be delisted. And some of the other companies that are still private have unfortunately had layoffs. It's been an industry that's gone through some rocky, turbulent times. On the flip side, Lime achieved a full year of EBITDA profitability in 2022, and we're aiming even higher in 2023. And so I think this LCFS participation is a really important recognition on the side of public policymakers, regulators, that we need to be investing in shared micromobility. So I think there's that piece that we need to be putting more money towards low carbon options like micromobility. There's also been a lot of attention from people who are focused on decarbonizing the transportation sector. Almost everyone focuses on electric vehicles, right? You see it in the U.S. legislation that passed. Tons and tons of money is being invested in building out EV charging stations, for example. But what often gets forgotten is that all of the forecasting, all the models that the U.N. and other organizations are putting out show that in order to mitigate climate change to reasonable levels... We have to do more than just build EVs, just move everyone from a gas car to an electric car. It's vital that we shift people from cars to walking, transit, and micromobility. To me, it's really exciting to see California take this program focused on cars and start to shift it and tweak it to see how it can use that program to encourage micromobility. And so I think that to me is the biggest achievement. And what it really means for the industry is this recognition that we are a part of the solution. I want to talk about some of the goals going forward in a couple of ways. And specifically, I think that we're talking about reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But in Los Angeles, I think this idea of first mile, last mile, getting people from their homes to public transit has always been a tricky achievement for planners. I remember when scooters and e-bike came on the scene, it seemed like this was going to be its real sort of foothold. And in Los Angeles, cars are the number one killer of children, right? More people are killed by cars than by guns in Los Angeles. What does Lyme see as a way of making the first mile, last mile situation more manageable? Is it something that the company will advocate for or lobby local governments on to have safer bike lanes or something like that between residential areas and mass transit stops? Yeah, that's one of the main promises of micromobility is sort of complementing and almost extending the transit system. There's that trunk line, gets you where you need to go, but now you're still a mile away from your actual destination. And so now that's what scooters or bikes are perfect for. I'd say there's several things we're doing to try to really live up to that promise. I'd say the first thing is we have to be in cities for it to do that. And so we have a whole government relations team that is trying to enter cities that are willing to have us. We do a fantastic job of that. In LA, we're present in the city proper, Long Beach, West Hollywood. We're interested in entering Santa Monica. 
And so really, if you're a traveler, you kind of need that pervasiveness, right? If you're going from LA to Santa Monica, and then maybe back, it's really important to have that first and that last mile component. So you need to be pervasively in lots of cities. You have to have a fleet size that can actually meet that demand. So a lot of times cities will actually cap how many scooters or bikes we can put out on the streets. And so that's a big talking point, right? And a big discussion point for us with cities is how do we have enough fleet to meet demand? Also balanced against the real parking concerns that people have. So that's a big balance. And then another thing that we do is just like transit systems have reduced fare programs for low income individuals. We do the exact same thing. We have a Lyme access program where if you're on any sort of federal, state, local aid benefits program, you can register in Lyme access. You get discounted trips. We see those people really benefiting from that program. They use Lyme more frequently. They use Lyme over longer time periods. Again, they're using it as an extension of that transit system. This low carbon fuel standard, does it take into account the commute or is it more consideration of your fleet's energy efficiency? Yeah. So I'd say the simplest way of putting it is imagining sort of the scales of justice, right? The like the scale on one side, the scale on the other side, do they balance out? And on one side, what we're trying to reduce is the number of our operation vans, how much they're on the road, how much gas they're consuming. So that's on one side. And then on the other side, what we're trying to do is we're trying to maximize not only the energy efficiency of our scooters, but also how many car trips and taxi trips and ride hail trips are we pulling off the road by people using Lime. And to figure that out, we use city of San Francisco, LA, San Jose, Oakland surveys of their riders. And across those four cities, we have like 10,000 responses. And so that's really the balancing act, right? And what we found was that we're pulling off more van VMT, car VMT than we are adding. And so the next thing for us really as a company is to take that step further with that scale and replace our gas vans with electric vans. We already had six electric vans on the road in California last year. We're at 11 this year. We're moving towards 100% electric vans by 2024. So that tips the scales even better in our favor. Are they like micro buses? They're essentially like the Ford Transit vans, you know, the large vans that our operations team goes around a city to either pick up a scooter or a bike that needs to be maintained, repaired, or is out there with our latest generation or Gen 4 scooters or bikes swapping batteries to essentially recharge them. So the recharging process, a scooter is out, these vans go pick it up or they go and they change the battery on site. They do. Yeah. So historically, what we did is we had to pull the scooter or the bike back into our warehouse to charge it. Right. So that means more van trips because you have to do multiple trips to take it off the road and then get it back on the road. Mm. And it means the scooters and bikes aren't out available for people as long because we had to bring them back to our warehouse. So instead, Mm. our latest generation bikes and scooters, which we design in-house, have swappable, actually interchangeable batteries. So a battery that goes into a scooter could also go into a bike and we're out in the field swapping them. And so they're right back in service if they had a depleted battery. So what are the next goals and what is next for Lime? I imagine that expansion is always what you guys are going for here. So what's next? Yeah, at the beginning of the year, our CEO set out some major goals for us. And the biggest two were financial sustainability, no surprise, and environmental sustainability. 
And what's really cool about Lime is those two go hand in hand. They really work together. And so what we achieved in 2022 with full year profitability, again, we're doubling down on that. And the way we achieved it is really through the same things we just talked about, like hardware innovation with our Gen 4 scooters and bikes. They last longer. We estimate they're going to last at least five years. They have better replaceable parts, so they stay in service longer. They stay in the field longer. We'll continue to build our vehicles in-house. The operation side, again, we just talked about that with our electric vans and really focusing on how do we use data to drive our operations. And then I touched on this earlier too. We need to keep winning competitive RFPs, requests for proposals in order to serve people in California and beyond. That's what we're going for as a company. And all that comes back to LCFS. Like I said, with our Gen 4 scooters, they're even more efficient. So that allows us to maybe go back to CARB and say, oh, we actually have better energy efficiency. Let's update our application. I already mentioned the electric fans. And then finally, as we continue to win RFPs, serve more people in California, that means more trips that replace cars, taxis. Beyond that, what we'd like to do is take our LCFS application from California and take it to other states. Oregon and Washington both have similar programs. And so this is really just a jumping off point for getting into those programs as well. Thank you, Calvin, and congratulations to you and to Lime. This is great. Thank you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. This is the end of the show. We did it. Another episode in can. So let me ask you, Seamus, you're a political consultant. You worked for Laura Friedman, assembly member in California. Your experiences are relevant in all the places Bike Talk is reaching. What is one nationwide policy change that you think could be done that would help us out in terms of bikes and mobility? Well, we were just talking about focusing on driving tests and making it a requirement to be mindful when you're opening a door to watch for bikes. We could actually make some headway if we focused on improving driver's training. Get in touch with the state legislator in your state to get something moving through the legislature that will improve driver's training, driver's tests. Let's see people required to know how to open a door in a safe way before they can get their driver's license. Things like that, I I think, have a bigger impact than people realize. You, You put these in tests, it starts to get into people's minds. People might not love it, but it would start to shift the culture in specific ways. Yeah. Until people on bikes stop having to ride where people are getting out of their cars, that might help. Well, have fun riding, everybody. And you have fun riding, Seamus. And send us your questions, your interview topics. Send us your opinions. At biketalk.org. Ride safe. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around.